Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. The John Frickin' Meerpod is stoked to partner with Garage Grown Gear for Season 6 of the podcast. Garage Grown Gear, or GGG for short, is your online store for all things ultralight backpacking. Dedicated to supporting the growth of small and cottage brands, they've got everything you need all in one place. From ultralight accessories to dehydrated meals to your big three, Garage Grown Gear has everything you need to lighten your load. Based out of St. Paul, Minnesota, GGG is known for its commitment to providing quality ultralight gear, stellar customer service, and free shipping in returns over $40. Do yourself a favor and get your gear at GGG. Never was anything great achieved without danger. Niccolo Machiavelli. And it was probably like, I don't know, 11 o'clock midnight. And the next thing we both knew, it was eight o'clock in the morning, the sun was out and neither one of us had any recollection of the night before. Um, I was actually being shaken. I was, I woke up on a bench being shaken by police officers telling me to get in the car. And I was like, Oh no, this is bad. Like I was super confused. I was like, I'm going to be on locked up abroad. Like, I don't know what happened, but this is not good. <laughs> but they were actually, it turns out they were just bringing me back to the campground where we were staying, which was very nice of them. Um, but I brought, everything out with me that night because I didn't want to leave it in the tent. So um, my passport, my wallet, credit cards, license. um, I had my iPod for some reason. That all got stolen. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio. Hey, is this thing on? Hello? Hit it again. I think it's on now. Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, where each week, Doc will drag some colorful characters out of the woods to talk trail and type 2 fun. If you're aspiring hiker trash, or if you're just looking to understand the hiker trash in your life, look no further. So lace up those boots, gnaw on some jerky, and settle into your 20-mile pace as we fire up the podcast from somewhere deep in the backcountry. It's time to embrace the suck. Welcome back to another week on the trail, dirt bags, hiker trash, and of course, good smelling day hikers. I'm Doc, and this is Hiker Trash Radio. 
Hey, if you like what we're doing here, take just a minute, help us out, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't like it, well, just go ahead and keep that to yourself. All right, let's get to this week's guest, an outdoor writer, adventure photographer, and an all-around renaissance man when it comes to outdoor life. Welcome to Hiker Trash Radio, Luke Kelly. How's it going, Luke? It's going well. Going well. Uh, beautiful time of year here in the Hudson Valley in New York. Went for a long run tonight, did a little grilling, so life's pretty good. Oh, that's great. You got the endorphins going, so this is going to be yeah. a great interview. Stay tuned for this one. <laughs> nice. Now, did I, do, did I do you justice in the introduction? Did I overhype it? Did I underhype it? Did I leave something out? No, I think it was pretty good. Kind of sums it up. Kind of um, had an eclectic array of experiences over the years. So, yeah, I think you did a great job. Okay. All right. Now, I, I know just from our outline for tonight that you, you've spent a lot of time on the trails. And in all that time, have you picked up a trail name? I have not. I oh. was thinking about that before the podcast. I, I need to get one eventually. I need to earn one. Okay. We typically go by by uh, trail names here on the podcast, but I am happy to call you Luke all night long. That's okay. Yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I was listening to a few podcasts earlier and uh, some pretty cool ones. Like I was listening to Enigma earlier. I was like, man, I need, I need to get a trail name. So I'm going to work on that. Okay. All right. Well, you'll have to come back on when you do have a trail name and give us the update on how that all went down. Absolutely. Okay. So you have listened to the podcast before. Um, what you're listening to is season five. We're now in season six. And so we've, we've kind of rebranded a little bit. We have the same segments, but they're titled different things to kind of coincide with uh, hiking life. And so what used to be the pro tip inside of the week, that is now the hiking hack. Oh, so okay. Hiking hack comes towards the end of the episode where I will turn to you and ask you to share some trail wisdom with our listeners so that their next outdoor experience is even better. So don't be surprised when we get there. And you can, of course, drop hiking hacks throughout the episode. Right on. Will do. Okay. Trailblazers Toolkit. All right. It's time for the Trailblazers Toolkit, sponsored by the Ultralight Backpacking Gear Company, Six Moon Designs. I love to talk about gear on the podcast, and I love to hear about the most important item in my guest adventure gear. So, Luke, if you were preparing your next adventure and I was the one providing you with all your gear, what is the one specific piece of gear you would insist on being packed? Give me all the specifics on that piece of gear and tell me why you've got to have it out there. This could be any type of item. It could be gear, apparel, or a luxury item. So, Luke, what is the item in your toolkit that you have to have out there? So, for me, I know you got to have food, shelter, water, but the most important thing for me is coffee. I always got to have coffee with me. I don't think I could function without it. So um, like if I'm hiking or camping, I always bring like some camp coffee, Kuju coffee. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with them, but it's like pour over coffee that goes over your mug and you just pour boiling water over it. So that's usually the first thing for me. I got to get the caffeine taken care of. Um, and then after that, obviously you got to have a good shelter, tent. I'm a big tent guy, um, sling fin portal is what I like to use on the trail. It's a single person, super light tent. So I'm a big fan of that. Okay. Um, yeah. And also okay, a good, you... go ahead. No, you go ahead. You go ahead. I'm not going to cut you off. <laughs> also a good sleeping pad. Um, you know, you got to have that layer of insulation between you and the ground. And I like to, um, I think it's worth it to carry a little more weight just to be comfortable um, when you're relaxing in the tent. So I have the uh, Thermarest ProLite Apex big fan of that keeps me super comfy i sleep nice. great in it. 
Nice. Now you are the first person in the history of the John Freaking Mirpod to list coffee as your your uh, <laughs> must bring item in your Trailblazers toolkit. So uh, congratulations yeah, yeah. on that. And I was going to ask if it was if it was uh, an iced coffee or if it was hot. You mentioned it was it was hot though. Yeah, I pretty much always drink my coffee hot. Even like a hundred degree days in New York, like I'll still be drinking hot coffee. I'm drinking some right now. I should, I should probably actually cut back a little bit, but. <laughs> I'm with you on that. Even on hot afternoons, I'm drinking, I'm drinking a cup of hot coffee. I, I don't know what it is. I, I prefer the hot, not the cold. Absolutely. All right. We're kindred spirits already. It's the Hawking Pole. All right. And to keep us talking about gear, I have this next segment called the Hiking Pole, and that's pole spelled P-O-L-L, uh, like a survey, not like the thing you hold in your hand out there. I always explain that because I think I'm pretty clever that I came up with that. Um, and your reaction is pretty, much, is pretty much the same. Yeah. As everybody else. I'm a fan. Okay, good, good, good. This is a seven question survey. that's going to help me give you a, a, a number on the crazy scale from one to a hundred with one being completely insane and 100 being completely sane. And looking at your resume, and the things that you've done, you have an automatic 30-point deduction. So your highest possible score tonight is 70. That's fair. You think so? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Now, if I were to ask your wife, you know, what, what score would she give you on the on the uh, sanity scale? What what do you think? Where, where do you think she'd put you? She'd probably put me somewhere on the crazier side. Yeah. South of 50. Probably south of 50. Okay. Although uh, since since we met, I've been a little less crazy, reeled it in a little bit. Now you have to be careful on that because sometimes, you know, your craziness is what attracts your, your significant other. And if you, if you dial it back, I mean, it, it might she lose interest. That's true. That's a good point. Just probably just stay how I was. <laughs> All right. Hey, are you nervous about the poll? No, I'm, no? I'm prepared. I listened to a few episodes, so okay. I'm ready. Right. You, you know what's coming then. Are you, are you an opinionated guy? Yeah, I have some strong opinions, but um, not confrontational. So I usually keep them to myself. <laughs> you have strong opinions that you keep to yourself. Got it. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to ask you to share some strong opinions tonight. And also, in addition to just giving your, your response one way or the other, I want to hear a little bit of an explanation as to why you chose that option. Okay. Okay. First question, trekking poles or no trekking poles? So this one's kind of funny. Um, I never used trekking poles all through my 20s. I thought they were kind of silly looking, kind of like maybe poke fun at people who used them. And then I hit my 30s, and I am all about the trekking poles now. Um, the first time I used them was on Kilimanjaro, and going downhill, they just they saved my knees so much. Um, so, yeah, as I've gotten older, I've definitely become a big trekking pole guy. Oh, I love this. You're you're a convert. You were one of those guys that made fun of other people with, with trekking poles. Maybe I mean just from your own description of of your strong opinions, you probably didn't say anything, but in your head, you were you were mocking them pretty pretty hard. I I do it sometimes when I was like 21. See somebody on the trail with poles, I'd be like, ah, look at that person, it's silly. But, but <laughs> and no, you know what? No. I I think that a lot of people that get into hiking that don't use trekking poles, they're worried of that exact thing. They're they're worried of looking a little silly. Uh, worried about what other people are going to think about them when really, I mean, those poles, they, they do a lot of work for you. Yeah, that was totally me when I was a little younger. But now I'm like, oh, man, I can't imagine hiking without them, um, especially on the downhill. 
And part of that's because my knees are getting a little older. And if I do a long hike, I'll feel it a little more than I used to. Yeah. Any problems with your knees? You know, I played football in high school. I did a lot of running in my 20s. I ran a marathon. So sometimes on really long hikes, um, longer day hikes, I should say, um, where there's a lot of up and down. By the end of the day, I'll be feeling it a little bit. Um, but no, nothing too serious, thankfully. Nothing that's going to stop me from getting after it. Nice. Now, I probably shouldn't even say this because I'll probably jinx myself. But I was a, I was a catcher in high school playing baseball. And right on. also I've picked up running in the last uh, 15 years. I've done a lot of running in addition to hiking, uh, getting out there in, in the Sierras. And I've never had any, any problem with my knees, meniscus, ACL, any of that stuff is it's, it, I've, I've avoided all of that up, up to this point until I just, you know, voice this to everybody. That's awesome. Even being a catcher. Yeah. Even being a catcher. That's hard on your knees for sure. Yeah. I wore the tools of ignorance as they call them. Yep. <laughs> All right. Question number two, what's on your feet out there? Boots or trail runners? Or or are, are you one of those rare barefoot guys? <laughs> no, no, not barefoot. I'm a bit I always wear boots. I'm a big boot guy. I use um the Hoka Oneoni boots. I'm a big fan of those. The um I think they're called the Kahas. And they're super comfortable. It's like walking on a cloud. Um a lot of support. So yeah, I've I've always worn hiking boots. Um, my brother's trying to get me to dabble in trail runners, but I don't know if it's not broke. Don't, <laughs> if it's not broke, don't fix it. That's right. That's right. Now you, you've never been tempted to make the jump to trail runners. I mean, that is the most popular, uh, piece of footwear out there these days. Y you boot guys are in the minority now. I know. I just like the ankle support. I don't know. Something about wearing a hiking boot. I'm going to, I'm going to stick with them. If I get into trail running, which I'd like to someday, then I'll switch over. But, you know, just for my average run-of-the-mill hike, like, I like having the support. Now, Luke, would, would I blow your mind if I told you they've done studies on ankle injuries amongst uh, those people who wear boots and who wear trail runners, and there's no significant difference? Really? Yeah. Oh, no. Now I might have to convert. I did not know that. I figured there was more support on your ankles with the boots, so probably be better off. And they also said, you've heard this before, that every every pound on your foot is like five on your back. So if the boots are heavier than the trail runners, you're you're putting that added load to your to, on, onto yourself. That's a good point. I think you might have changed my mind. I might have to go out and uh, try some trail runners now. My brother uses them, and he's, he's a big advocate. He says they're great, a little bit lighter, feels a little more agile. Yeah, and if you're addicted to Hoka, I mean, you have the Hoka boots. They also make, get ready for this. Are you sitting down? I'm sitting they, down. They make some trail runners too. Oh, I'm going to have to check them out now. <laughs> All right. I think I know the answer to this question because you may have mentioned it just a little bit earlier, but when it comes to your shelter out there, what do you prefer? Tent, tarp, hammock, bivy, or cowboy camping? So I've done a little bit of everything, but like I said, I prefer the tent. Um, I love the sling fin tent, super light. Uh, I just feel more comfortable. Um, you know, if it's a nice night, I'll keep the fly off and just look at the stars. Uh, if it's pouring rain, I don't like to get wet, so I use that. Um, back when I was traveling a lot in my 20s, I wound up just crashing in my car a lot. Um, you know, some of the national parks, it's harder to find a campground. Uh, so sometimes I just pull over on the side of the road, and I had an old blue Hyundai Sonata, and I just crash in the back. Um, so I've done a lot of car camping, too. But most of the time, I go with the tent if I can. 
Now, was that was that the appeal that your 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 now wife saw? I mean, living out of your car. <laughs> I think I think she thought I was a little bit different. Um, I might have been part of the appeal. <laughs> I don't know All if right. she approves of it now or not. I haven't uh, done a whole lot. Of- I haven't done a lot of sleeping in my car the last year or two. Okay. All right. That's a, that's a check in the right column then. Um, how, mu- how much does your tent weigh? That I'm actually not sure of. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I just know it's pretty light. Is it a, is it a trekking pole tent? No, no, it's got, it's got some poles. Yeah, it's got, it's got some poles. Okay. Um, but, you know, I'm not a thru-hiker. I haven't done any super long thru-hikes. You know, I've done some 100-milers here. Um, but weight down to the ounce has never been that big of an issue for me. And like I said, like, I don't mind trading a little bit of weight for comfort. So if my pack's a little bit heavier, I'm, I'm usually okay with that. Okay. Now, you've, you've only done some 100-milers. you know what percent of the population on the planet has done a 100-mile hike? <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> Me either, but I'm I'm assuming it's very very small. So yeah, you're, you're probably right. Don't don't, don't 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 sell yourself short. Yeah, you're right. I shouldn't do that. But um, I was listening to you know like people who have done the PCT and the AT, and I'm like, that's a whole different ball game. Um, something I would like to try someday, though. I mean, like listening to these guys, I'm like, wow, it sounds like uh, be a lot of fun. Yeah, there's like a pyramid, right? There there's day hikers. That's probably the most. Right, the yep. most number of people out there, and then you got people who do uh, things like us, you know, hundred mile hikes, and then then you've got uh, the long trail guys, you know, the AT, PCT, CDT. Then you've got the calendar year triple crowners who do all three in one year, and then That's you've really got those those rare individuals who have done all five loops on the Berkeley marathons. Yeah, that, that's kind of like the pyramid of of endurance athlete i don't know yeah it's wild i'm really impressed by those people at the top though i mean can't imagine what that's like but uh yeah like the at or the pct that appeals to me that's something I've, if i could ever find enough time off that's something i'd like to go for yeah i think in order to be at the top of that pyramid you need to be able to really lean into being uncomfortable. You have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. You have to embrace the suck. You, you have to yeah. realize that this is going to, this is going to be terrible for a while. And you know what? That's okay. Yeah. And I wonder if you ever get used to it um, or if you kind of like settle into a groove and the days just kind of fade away. Um, I've always been interested in that, but you're going to have to give that a shot and get back to us on that. Yeah, I'll keep you posted if I do. Like I said, okay. like it's just, it's just trying to find the time. Like get set aside a six month chunk, getting harder and harder to find these days. Agreed, agreed. You and I are in the same boat. All right, question number four: sleeping bag or quilt out there? Always a sleeping bag. Um, Yvonne Chouinard said sleeping in a sleeping bag is like going back to the womb, and I agree with that. It's super comfortable. Um, I have the Marmot cloud break zero degree bag and, uh, I've been really happy with it. I'm also one of those people. Um, I'm terrible about taking my bag out of the compression sack when I'm done traveling. So it's a zero degree bag, but it really sleeps like a summer bag now, which is fine with me. Cause I do most of my camping in the summertime. It's probably like a 40 degree bag now. And it's, it's perfect. Now, if, if using a sleeping bag is like uh, being back in the womb, do you sleep in the fetal position? <laughs> no, I don't. 
I usually uh, sleep on my back when I'm in the tent, but I sleep great in a sleeping bag, like better than I do at home in a bed. Really? Yeah. Wow. Now, do you sleep on your back at home in bed? No, it's weird. I sleep on my stomach at home. Just these things, like when you're outdoors, I don't know. On a sleeping pad, I always feel more comfortable on my back. And I like to read in the tent, too, with my headlamp, so I'm always just kind of laying back reading and then just kind of pass out. Now, have you heard of Norman Clyde? I have not. So he was a principal way back in the day, principal in Independence, California, uh, which is just east of the Sierras. It's right up against the, the the foothills of the Sierras. And he got fired from his job, which turned out to be okay because he then devoted his time to to being in the mountains. And he assisted on several search and risk rescue missions. Uh, in fact, didn't just assist, but led, led them a lot of first ascents out there, just lived a life of, you know, his next 60 years out there in, in the Sierras, just doing incredible things. And when he finally retired in, in air quotes there, when he retired from that kind of life, he had a, a house. Um, I think it was independence it was some small town just East of, of the Sierras. He could not sleep in a bed anymore. He, he, he would spend most of his nights sleeping uh, in his front yard, looking at the stars. That's too funny. I believe it, though. Um, my buddy and I were down in Patagonia for three months, and we slept in a tent every, pretty much every single night. And I remember that first week I got back home, I had a hard time sleeping in a bed. I was like, this is too cushy. This is too easy. Like, I'm going to go pitch my tent in the yard. <laughs> so and I did you? Did you? I did not. Okay. But, I, but you I, felt I, like you, you should. Yeah. I, I felt like I should. And even on that trip, a couple times we stayed in hostels and, like, we were so excited to have a warm shower and a bed and we could not sleep. We like got to get back in, back in the tent, back in the mountains. That is so funny because there's probably an adjustment the other way too, right? Coming and coming out of a civilized life and getting on, getting out on the, on the trail. Those first couple of nights, is there kind of a transition period where you don't sleep too well? When I first started traveling, there was, um, it's funny, actually the first time I ever slept in a tent, in the woods was after my, I got started late. It was my, after my freshman year of college, my buddy and I went up to Alaska to do this big hitchhiking and camping trip. And um, the first time I ever slept in a tent was actually on that trip. And I told him that as we were camping, I was like, dude, I've never actually camped before. Um, so early on in my travels, there was definitely a transitional period for like those first two or three nights in the tent. And then you kind of get into a rhythm, but now I don't have that. Now I look forward to it. Nice. All right. Question number five. When it comes to food out there, you a stove guy, stoveless or cold soak? You know, it kind of depends on the trip. If I'm going somewhere where I'm going to need to boil water, I'll definitely have a stove with me. Um, if I'm going into the back country for any extended period of time, I'll definitely have a stove. I'm a big fan of uh, ramen noodles. <laughs> That's uh, been our go-to for some reason. So we'll boil up some noodles and like mix in a little meat or tuna um but a lot of the stuff i do I, I won't bring a stove especially if it's you know more of a single day or a you know two or three day hike i'll just bring a lot of dry food a lot of peanut butter too big big peanut butter guy can't have enough peanut butter no absolutely not agreed smooth peanut butter too can't be can't be crunchy no crunchy huh uh, uh, i like this you, peanut you just butter. lost a couple points <laughs> <laughs> But that's de that's definitely a staple. I've eaten probably a, I don't know a thousand peanut butter sandwiches over the years. Those will stick to your ribs. Do you, do you a lot of good out there? Absolutely. 
All right. Question number six is life better above or below the tree line? Gotta be above. I love being above the tree line. And you know what's funny is that's the right answer, but you still lose points because that's a little bit crazy. <laughs> <laughs> and and why is that? Does it, does anybody ever say below tree line? Yes. Yeah. And they lose more points. So you didn't okay. lose as many points. <laughs> no, I gotta be above tree line. That's the best feeling. Like, you know, grinding it out below tree line. And then when you finally break out, you can kind of get above everything, see the view. Love that feeling. That's right. All right. And you, I think you've already answered this, but you can kind of expound a little bit more. Um, what's more important, pack weight or luxury items? I think luxury, for me, luxury items. Um, I don't mind carrying a heavier pack if I'm going to be comfortable out there. Um, I've gotten better about not bringing super unnecessary items. Um, but I always bring like a book to read. I've got, I actually got a Kindle now, which is very nice. Instead of like lugging a bunch of books with me, like I used to I have a bunch of books on my Kindle so I can read in the tent. Um, I still bring a journal, but a much smaller one now. Um, and then, like I said, peanut butter doesn't pack light, but always have that coffee, probably not a necessity to a lot of people, but I always have that. Um, so yeah, I definitely, uh, will carry a little extra weight just to have some comforts out there. Now, were you a purist? You had to have your hardcover books out there, not not paperbacks? <laughs> ah, you know, in my early 20s, I probably did bring some hardcover. Like I was, I don't know, I was in good shape. Like I just, I was reading all the time. I, I would love, it's funny. I would bring, a, like I read some John Muir, some Henry David Thoreau. Getting in uh, the mood. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was all about that when I was a kid. Okay. But now, now it's all the Kindle. All right, Luke, I've got to do some math here. I've got to put your answers through the John freaking Murpod algorithm and we'll see what we come up with. I've got, all right. I got to carry the three or divide that by root five and I'm going to multiply that by pi. And we're going to make a slight adjustment uh, for the wind, wind chill factor from your tent, from your backyard in the Hudson Valley. And I come up with a score of 43. All right. I'll take it. I yeah. think that's accurate. Accurate. Okay, good. I mean, we're, we're getting this dialed in a little bit. So I'm yeah. glad that it kind of kind of matches. Um, now, before we get too far down the trail, let's back up a little bit. I'd love to hear about your background, where you grew up. Um, you, you already mentioned a brother. So I'd like to hear about, you know, siblings and what kinds of sports and hobbies you guys played play when you were in high school. And how did you get involved in the outdoor adventure cult? Yeah, so I grew up in the Hudson Valley in New York State. Um, we're about 100 miles north of New York City, um, but it's actually pretty quiet here. Um, you know, a lot of farms, a lot of forests. The Catskill Mountains aren't too far away, um, just across the Hudson River. So growing up, I go over there a lot. And, um, you know, as kids, I grew up in a neighborhood with a bunch of boys that were similar in age to me. So we were outside all the time. Like we were playing manhunt, wiffle ball, um, just kind of, there wasn't a lot to do in town. So we were kind of making our own fun, but we were, we really were outdoors a lot. You know, this we played a, in town. This is a small farm town. Yeah. Yeah. The town I grew up in, it's called Red Hook. It's about, I think there's about 12,000 people now. So it's pretty small. Um, and, but yeah, like we kind of had to make our own fun. There wasn't a lot going on. So, you know, we'd be out in the woods all the time. Um, we'd be paddling out on the lakes and the ponds around here. So I think my love for the outdoors was kind of born just from being outside all the time. 
and like I was saying, like we played Nintendo 64 and stuff and like we'd be indoors once in a while, but for the most part, like we we were getting out there. So yeah, I think that's definitely where my love for the outdoors kind of began. And then um as I got older, look, let me stop you just for a second because I want to ask a question about, you know, your life in a rural town uh back in the what, 90s? Uh 80s? Late 90s, early early 2000s. Okay, okay. I, I didn't want to I don't, I don't want to offend you. Uh, late nineties, early two thousands. Um, I mean, so you, you grew up outside parents, probably you're probably out there all day long. Uh, no cell phone at the time. Right. I mean, it, it, no you're phone. not connected to your, your parents on, a, on any kind of tether. You're, you're out there doing, doing your stuff. And, you know, how does that compare to today's kids? I mean, I think, you know, I'm in education. I see, I, I've been working with kids for, for 30 years. And I think growing up today as a kid is, is more difficult than it's ever been in terms of being able to connect with other people to, you know, you're all, you've, you've now got every, every kid on social media and it, it seems like they're further than ever from the outdoors. I mean, is, is that a correct assessment? What do you think about that? Yeah, I would agree with that. I would imagine that it's a lot more difficult for kids now, especially with social media um, and so much time on their phones. You know, being a teenager is a difficult time, you know, no matter what. And to, you know, have people always posting images of, you know, what they want their best life to look like. I would imagine that takes a toll on the kids. Um, And it's probably a difficult thing to navigate. I'm glad that we didn't have that, you know, when I was in middle school and stuff like that. We had AOL Instant Messenger but that was about it. Um, but, you know, I'm sure, you know, I hope kids, are, I don't know a lot of kids these days, but I hope that they're still getting outside and, you know, exploring the mountains and woods as much as possible. Um, but I would imagine it takes a little more of a deliberate effort when it's, you know, you're, you're not doing it out of necessity. Um, you know, you're doing it because maybe your parents telling you to go outside um, and take a break from the phone, you know? So, yeah. Cause it, um, like when we grew up, it was definitely, there just wasn't a lot to do. You know, we weren't texting, we weren't on Instagram. So we just like go outside and figure out what to do. Right. Yeah. Totally, totally agree. Um, and even when they're, when their parents send them outside today, I mean, they're, they're uh, checking in with them or tracking their location or, I mean, there's, there's really no, you're always connected. It seems like. Yeah. Yeah. And that may be good from a safety standpoint. Like there were so many times like where my parents probably had no idea where the hell I was. Um, and if we were out in the neighborhood, like there were literally literally parents that would just like yell their kids names until <laughs> until they heard and went home for dinner or whatever. Um, so there's probably pros and cons to both. Yeah. How did, how did we survive? I don't know. We made it somehow. We made it through. We made it through. We made it. And, and we also made it through in a time where our worst mistakes were not posted on all over the internet for, for the world to see. I think about that a lot. I feel very lucky about that, especially through like college and stuff. Like I just missed that window. Um, yeah. And I imagine that's a lot of pressure for kids. I imagine they're super aware of it. Um, and if it does happen, I'm sure it's, you know, a really difficult experience. No, I, I cut you off. Anything else to share about your childhood and, and uh, outdoor adventure? your introduction to that um no just just kind of what i said you know um this area is it's a beautiful area the hudson valley mm-hmm. um 
Um, so I think I was drawn to that, you know, it's kind of a, it's not like the spectacular mountain ranges out West. It's kind of a, more of a pastoral beauty, but, um, you know, I think exploring that's where I got my love for the outdoors. And then as I got older, you know, I'd never really been out of here. So I was kind of like, man, I wonder what else is out there and really kind of had that yearning to see more of the world. And I think that's kind of where like I caught the travel bug. Yeah. And let's talk about that because you have, you've had a very varied uh, work history. I mean, you've had a lot of different experiences out there that seem really cool. Uh, for example, I see here that you worked on a co- commercial fishing boat in Alaska. I did. I did that for uh, four summers. I worked in Haines, which is a town. It's in southeast Alaska. It's about, I don't know, it's a few hours north of Juneau. Um, yeah, beautiful area. But um, yeah, so I was 20, 20 years old. And, um, you know, I was kind of not really sure what I wanted to do. I wasn't really sure of myself. Uh, we had been to Alaska the summer the summer before on that trip I had mentioned with my best friend, just kind of hitchhiking around. And um, we had talked to some kids our age up there who talked about working on commercial fishing boats. And it just sounded like such a cool adventure. Um, you know, it, it really appealed to me. Um, so I kind of got it in my head that winter that I wanted to work on a commercial fishing boat. Um you know, a big part of it was that I wanted to do something difficult. I think at that point in my life, I kind of wanted to, you know, prove myself a little bit. Um, and I thought that if I could do that, I would come away with kind of, a, you know, if I could do something that was difficult and a little dangerous, maybe I'd come away with a greater sense of my self-worth, um, you know, at least in my thinking at the time. So it's kind of crazy how it all played out. Um, I, w- I was a sophomore at Ithaca College. And, you know, New York State, it's a long way from Alaska. So I just like, I started Googling like Alaska commercial fishing jobs. And I actually found a job on Craigslist on a tender boat, which is um, the tender boats, they supply the fishing boats with fuel. Um, they offload the fish, you know, bring them into town. So it wasn't quite a fishing job, but I was like, ah, maybe I can get a foot in the door. It's in some town called Chignik, um, which happens to be like, way out in uh southwest alaska it's super remote like town of maybe like 80 people and you can only get there by boat or plane um so yeah at the time that sounded like a good idea to me and i hopped on a flight to anchorage and then i had to take a small plane to king salmon and then a bush plane to chignik and when i got there and saw the boat it was the boat i was going to be working on it was really not in good shape (laughs) you know like kind of like not what you'd want to see for a boat you'd be spending your summer on. You know, the hull was all rusted out. The paint was falling off. Um, so I was, I was on that boat for a few weeks and I was like working on a tender is not for me. Like I want to, want to be on a real fishing boat. Like I want to be where the action is. Cause we, you know, working on a tender, it was um, a lot of sitting around, which was very difficult for me at that point. So I wound up jumping ship like two or three weeks into it. And I was like, I'm just going to go and try to find a real commercial fishing job where I can be catching fish and working hard all day and doing all the things that I wanted to do. So I caught a ferry to Kodiak or to Homer. And I, um, I just went down to the docks and started asking captains for a job. And they were like, do you have any experience? I was like, no. And from New York and the, you know, nobody wanted to hire me. So I was there for about a week, um, just camping out on the Homer spit. 
And I had a friend in Haynes um, at the time. So I was like, oh, I'll go to Haynes. I'll have a place to stay. Hopefully I can find a job there. So I went to Haynes and I walked the docks there for probably like the better part of a week, just asking all the captains if, you know, anybody had a spot on the boat and they all said no. Um, And then finally on the day I was about to give up and just go back to New York and like go back to my lifeguarding job at the time. Uh, I met up with a captain who had just had crew quit on him and he gave me a spot on his boat and I worked with him for four summers. And what was the name of the boat? Uh, it was called the Sea Dawn. Yep, it was a drift gill in that boat, and uh, I really enjoyed it. It was uh, it was hard work. It was long hours, not a lot of sleep, but uh, yeah, it was kind of everything I hoped it would be. Yeah, a little little bit of danger in there as well. Yeah, every now and then the seas would get rough, and um, you know you'd be super tired because the Department of Fishing Game will open it up for you know three to seven days at a time and be like, okay, you can fish now. So there are people out there that literally don't sleep. They just stay awake for seven days straight. Cause that's their window to make their money. Um, I was lucky. I was on a boat. We'd anchor up and sleep, you know, three hours. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was cool. Kind of, kind of similar to deadliest catch. I used to watch deadliest catch all the time. And those guys seemed like they, they didn't get a whole lot of sleep. It was, yeah, it's not that hardcore. Um, but the concept's similar, you know, you're out there working all the time. The Bering seas, you know, I was in, um, the Lynn Canal, which is, it's actually the deepest fjord in North America. Um, but it's, I think, anywhere from 6 to 12 miles wide. So we could always see land. Um, it still gets rough. It still gets super windy. But it's not, I don't think it's quite like the Bering Sea. I yeah. like that show, too. I, I was a fan. Yeah. Now, you, you went from that experience to also racking up uh, a, a, another job experience in Australia working on a sheep farm. I mean, that's like the opposite. That's like the other side of the world. Yeah. Um, so that was cool. I was, I was studying abroad after, after that first summer in Alaska, um, my buddy and I decided that we wanted to go study abroad in New Zealand. And I was like, well, if I'm going all the way to New Zealand, I got to go to Australia. Um, but I didn't know anybody in Australia and I wanted to spend some time there. So I was working at the fitness center at my college at the time. And this girl walked in and I heard she had an Australian accent and I was just like, are you from Australia? And she's like, yeah. And I was like, can you like find me a job there? I'm going, I want to go there for a month before I go to New Zealand. And she's like, oh yeah, sure. Like you come help out on my family sheep farm. So it was pretty cool. I went there and they were, you know, um, the girl Megan and her family, they were fantastic. They put me up for quite a few weeks there and I helped out a little bit, you know, plowing the fields. Um, I didn't shear any sheep. Might've like swept up the, the fur a little bit, but it was cool. And then um, from there, I just kind of did, did trips all over Australia or all over the eastern part of Australia. That's just another example how life has changed, how the world has changed, right? I imagine if if a girl walks, you walked up to a girl and said, hey, is that an Australian accent? Can you get me a job in Australia? I don't think she'd say, yeah, come work on my farm. It's no, that's not. The same, the same reality anymore. Yeah, it really has changed a lot. They, they were uh, simpler times. But yeah, it was cool. And we're, we're still friends. We still keep in touch. So now it's it was Megan cool. and not Megan. No, it's Megan. And I, I didn't know that um, for like the first three weeks I was there, I was calling her Megan. And I thought Megan may have just been like the accent or something. And then she's like, no, my name's actually Megan. <laughs> I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. Yeah. And how are you paying the bills these days, Luke? 
So I have a little photography business, um, which is what I'm super passionate about. I do travel and landscape photography and I sell prints. I do calendars, note cards. Um, I've also started doing a little bit of real estate photography, just trying to be really creative about how I can, you know, make a little money doing what I enjoy doing. Um, and my full-time job, my day job, I actually work at a children's home. And I've been there for seven years. I was an executive assistant there for four years. And I was working at a desk and I really had a hard time sitting still. Um, so I actually took a pay cut and went in the maintenance department so I could just be like outside and working with my hands all day and moving around, which has really been a good decision. I'm so much happier than I was sitting at that desk all day. Nice. I mean, it's 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 just an example of you know pursuing your passions and realizing where you're going to be happier even if it means taking a pay cut. I mean, exactly. there's worth in that. Yeah. And you can't put a price tag on like your mental health, your well-being, your physical fitness. It's just so much more worth it for me. And I'm a lot happier doing that. Um, and also like I've been at this place. It's a good place to work. Um, they also have a lot of vacation time. So when I turned 26 and needed to get health insurance, I knew I needed to find a full-time job. And this place thankfully has a lot of vacation time. Um, so I was, able to continue to travel not nearly as much as i had in my early mid-20s um, but still getting out there for you know four five trips a year okay. so that, that was a big part of it too all right we're going to take a quick break we're going to hear from the sponsors pay some bills and we're going to come back and hear about some of those adventures so stay tuned we'll be right back From the backcountry to the backyard, we believe everyone deserves the highest level of protection. Since 1984, Sawyer Products offers the best, most technologically advanced solutions for protection against sun, bugs, and water. Using time-released liposome technology, topical insect repellents, and new standards in water filtration. And with every Sawyer product you buy, you are helping to provide clean water through 140 charities in 80 countries with their long-lasting water filters. Every Sawyer product you buy is an investment in our common humanity. Choose Sawyer and keep the adventure going, knowing that their products have been tested and chosen by those who count on serious protection on the trail all day long. This episode is sponsored by Jolly Gear. Are you tired of compromising between the ventilation of a button-down and the full protection of a sun hoodie? With the Triple Crown button-down, you can have the best of both. Plus, their fun standout patterns will have you the talk of the trail. Visit them at jollygear.com. Thru-hiker owned, Jolly Gear, where fun meets functional. Six Moon Designs has been innovating ultralight backpacking gear for the past 20 years. With a wide range of products ranging from ultralight shelters to backpacks and accessories like their extensive line of trekking umbrellas, Six Moon Designs is sure to have a great piece of gear for your needs. With the company philosophy being that gear should aid one's experience, not define it, Six Moon Designs thinks the more time people spend outside the natural world, the better off this world will be. And remember, go wild, live young. And welcome back. We are talking to Luke Kelly, uh, a.k.a. No Trail Name Yet. 
And we just heard about uh, some of his work history, where he grew up. Um, let's talk about some of your adventures. So let, let's let's uh, start off in New Zealand. Okay, you, you worked on the farm for a bit in Australia. Now you're in New Zealand. What, what kinds of adventures did you have in New Zealand as you were studying abroad? So it was interesting. We um, I went from Australia to New Zealand. I was studying in Christchurch in February of 2011. Um, you know, the first three weeks we were there were awesome. We were surfing, we were going to the mountains, we were doing a little bit of rock climbing. Um, semester was just getting underway and like, we were super stoked. We're like, this is awesome. South Island's beautiful. And then in February, um, that big 6.3 earthquake hit and kind of changed everything. Um, and it, it was pretty crazy. Um, I'd never experienced an earthquake before. I knew it was a possibility there. So as soon as it started, I, I knew it was going on. Um, I was sitting in the, on the ground floor of a computer lab. It was me and one other student. And it started off as a really low rumble. Like it kind of sounded like a freight train was going by outside the window and it grew more intense. And I was sitting in one of those rolly computer chairs and the floor kind of like shifted a foot in either direction. I was kind of rolling all over and then the lights went out and the ceiling started shaking. It got a little bit scarier. Um, and just as quick as it started, it stopped. And there was just like this really eerie silence and me and the other student just kind of looked at each other and we were just like, whoa, uh, that was kind of crazy. But we didn't see any visible damage, so we just kind of assumed everything was okay. Um, so I went back up to my apartment. I saw my buddy. You know, everybody felt it. You know, it was so intense. And we were just kind of like nervously laughing. He told me a story about how he was making a sandwich and it like fell off the uh, countertop with the shaking and he caught it in midair. Um so we were just kind of like not really sure what to do next. Um, I knew in an earthquake you're supposed to – well, I knew the aftershocks were coming, so I was like, we got to get outside. Um, that was a big earthquake. There could be some big aftershocks, and there were. Um, we were outside when the second one hit, and I think that was like a, still like a 5.4. It was it was a big – the first aftershock was pretty substantial. Um, and like just we're seeing the telephone wires sway and the cars bouncing up and down. So we were like, this is kind of crazy, but we didn't realize, because we were on campus where all the buildings were relatively new, so we didn't realize um, how much damage there was down downtown um, in Christchurch. It's an older city. There were a lot of brick buildings. Um, we didn't realize that there were people trapped and people who had been killed. So that's once we realized that, um, it became a lot more serious. Yeah, it had a big impact on on that region of the world for a significant period of time. It did. Yeah. Um, you know, I think they're still kind of rebuilding that city from what I've heard. Um, yeah. So it, it was scary for a few days. Um, it was really sad. If there's any silver lining, though, um, it was pretty incredible to see how that community came together in the wake of that tragedy. Um, we volunteered for the week following the earthquake. Uh, when an earthquake hits, the ground kind of loses its integrity and everything's covered in this like really fine kind of mud. It's called liquefaction. Um, you may be familiar with it. Um, Southern, Southern California. Yep. Yeah. I was going to say, you probably know a thing or two about earthquakes. Um, but we volunteered digging people's homes out of, out of the liquefaction, just shoveling it into the streets. And then these big bulldozers would come and clear it away. We were digging out people's yards. Um, so I, I talked to some people from Christchurch and it was just really incredible to see how everybody kind of had each other's backs. Um, you know, it was a good reminder that 
people can be really resilient and come together when the time, you know, calls for it. So if, if there was any silver lining, it was, it was amazing to see that, you know, the mentality on the ground was kind of like, all right, this happened. Like, how are we going to get through it now? And how are we going to look out for our neighbors? All right. How long were you, how long were you in New Zealand? So I was in New Zealand for six months after the earthquake. They, um, our study abroad program made us evacuate the city. I think all exchange students had to. So we actually wound up spending uh, the semester in Auckland, which we were all kind of bummed about. Like we wanted to be on the South Island closer to the outdoors. Uh, the North Island's still super beautiful, but you know, the Alps are on, on the South Island. So what we wound up doing was we were studying in Auckland. We do um, like weekend trips around the North Island. There's some big volcanoes similar to the Cascade volcanoes um, on the West coast of the States. So we did some climbing there. We climbed those volcanoes and uh, then we took a four-week trip. We had a long spring break, so we took a four-week road trip around the South Island, and that was super cool, um, just kind of hiking in the Alps and the Southern Alps, going all along the coastline. It's amazing how varied that landscape is. Like, you know, one minute you can be looking at the most beautiful coastline you've seen, and the next, you know, you're up in the mountains um, on a glacier. You can really see a lot in a relatively, I think, the South Island's like the size of Michigan or something. It's not a big area. So it, that was super cool. Now, I think this came into existence probably after you're, you were there in New Zealand, but have you heard about the TA? I have not. So the TA uh, is the, the trail that goes across New Zealand, goes goes the length of both islands. Oh, really? I haven't heard of that. Yeah, Te, te Ara, Araroa. I believe it is. And I'm probably butchering that all to heck, but uh, uh, that's why I, I just call it the TA. And that sounds awesome. It's a little bit redundant because the is actually translated to te. So it's mm-hmm. like the, the, uh, yeah. yeah. So, but anyway, uh, the TA and I've had a few people on who have hiked it. And it's like, you know, you're, you're exploring the, the realm of Lord of the Rings. That's gotta be super cool. I hadn't heard about, about that. I'm gonna have to read about that now. Yeah, check it out. Yeah, the, check it out. The landscape's just surreal. We actually did, um, we hiked Mount Doom, the Mount Doom from the movie. I think it's actually called Mount Narahoe, but my buddy and I hiked up that. It was pretty sweet. Did you throw a ring into the volcano? I pretended to. I okay. threw an icicle in and quoted Lord of the Rings. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What, what was after New Zealand? What, what was the next adventure for you? So I actually went straight from New Zealand back to Alaska to work on a boat for my second summer. And that's when I realized like commercial fishing in Alaska was actually a really good way to support my traveling lifestyle. Cause I'd go up to Alaska, you know, work for six weeks on the boat, make a quick shot of money, depending on the season we had and um, then go travel. So it really worked out well. Yeah. Um, and that is a lifestyle that I've heard a lot about in terms of, people looking for jobs that will, will uh, help finance their adventures. And they're not, they're not year long jobs. They're temporary kind of temporary jobs yeah, that accumulate enough money to go then do what they want to do. Yeah. And it's, it's a really cool thing to do. Um, so yeah, I was doing, you know, working seasonally up there in the summer times and then planning my trips for the fall and winter. And it, it was really fun for a few years. So I worked up there my third summer and um, the trip after that was Patagonia. And that was one. Um, I met another guy who had um, been in the earthquake in New Zealand who got sent to Auckland. He was from Norway, my buddy Martin. And, uh, we, you know, we became friends on a climbing trip there. 
And we stayed in touch. I went and visited him in Norway in the wintertime. Super, super cold, super dark, but very beautiful. And we started planning this trip to uh, Patagonia. So that was the next big one after uh, New Zealand. And what what were your expectations of Patagonia? What had you heard? What were you looking forward to? Um, I was looking for, I mean, I'd seen some of those pictures of, you know, like Mount Fitzroy and Torres del Pine National Park, and they just look so spectacular. So I was really looking forward to going to those two places. Um, and I don't know if you've ever seen the movie 180 Degrees South. I have. Yes. Yeah. yeah. We were super, we were super into that film. And uh, so I think some of our perceptions of what Patagonia would be like were based off of watching that film over and over. But and did it live up to expectations? It really did, yeah. It was different than I expected. That was my first trip to South America. I've been back a number of times since, but um, yeah, it definitely did. Uh, those parks are just spectacular and like mountains like I've never seen. We did the W Circuit in Torres del Pine, which was a really cool hike. Um, just kind of camping the whole time. Our packs were way too heavy on that trip. I was still kind of learning. But that that was definitely a highlight. Um, the one thing I was surprised about, I mean, I knew it was a, you know, a huge region, Chile and Argentina, but a lot of it was, um, just like windswept plains, you know, you drive for a long time on these flat dirt roads and then almost seemingly out of nowhere, these really spectacular, you know, the Andes would pop up. Um, and it was like, just really kind of interesting to see that, um, just going cool. from, like the, like, ju- the juxtaposition of the, uh, the flat plains and then the Andes appearing yeah just going from like really flat and desolate to these really spectacular majestic peaks was cool and did anything exciting happen to you in patagonia yeah we um we had a little mishap after we did the w circuit i i got mugged and uh lost my passport for a week so that put a little uh damper on the trip because we were planning to go to argentina right after you know the that southern part of chile so it's it's kind of a long story, but um, you know, we we got done doing that track. We were all stoked. We'd just been to this really beautiful place, and we decided to go out and have a few beers in this little town called Puerto Natales. And um, you know, my buddy Martin and I, we we weren't going crazy. We were just having a few beers together, and it was probably like I don't know, eleven o'clock midnight. And the next thing we both knew, it was eight o'clock in the morning. The sun was out and neither one of us had any recollection of the night before. Um, I was actually being shaken. I was, I woke up on a bench being shaken by police officers telling me to get in the car. And I was like, oh no, this is bad. Like I was super confused. I was like, I'm going to be on locked up abroad. Like, I don't know what happened, but this is not good. <laughs> but they were actually, it turns out they were just bringing me back to the campground where we were staying, which was very nice of them. Um, but I brought everything out with me that night because I didn't want to leave it in the tent. So um, my passport, my wallet, credit cards, license. um, I had my iPod for some reason that all got stolen. And also my lucky red hook hat that was signed by New York giants head coach, Tom Coughlin that got stolen too. I was super bummed about that. (laughs) That might've been the worst part. Did they put out a a, a bolo, a be on the lookout for uh, a possible mugger wearing a a uh, <laughs> cap signed by Tom Coughlin? I don't know. I don't think they would have got it back though. Tom Coughlin's great coach. No, now, did you did you get roofied? Yeah, I think that's what happened. Because oh my um, gosh, you know we were 
we had just graduated college. We were both um, in pretty good drinking shape at the time. Like we wasn't any, we weren't doing anything crazy. Um, we weren't drinking excessively that night. So yeah, we were both drugged. Um, Martin says he, he, we, he said he woke up on the side of the road somewhere. Like we got separated, which is, it's a little scary in hindsight. At the time I was more just kind of annoyed um, and, and um, you know, frustrated trying to figure out what to do next because I didn't have my passport. I didn't know, you know, how we were going to get into Argentina. We've been planning this trip for months. Like now we we're going to have to call it off if we couldn't get across the border. Um, so we were starting to look at, you know, ferries back to, cause there weren't roads through Chile that go back to Santiago. So we were starting to look at ferries. Um, I was just like walking around town, kind of wondering what to do next, like trying to figure out what happened. And um, I told the campground host, his name was Senor Yosmar. I told him what happened to me and I'm not, I, you know, I'm not fluent in Spanish. I'm okay. Um, so we kind of communicated and I told him, um, you know, I'd been robbed and my passport was missing and he was the nicest guy. He actually paid um, his own money to have an ad play on the radio in this tiny little town saying, if anybody's found a U.S. passport, please bring it back to this campground. And I was thinking, you know, that's such a nice gesture and I really appreciate it, but like, it's just not going to work. Like we're still going to have to cancel this trip. And uh, we're actually in an internet cafe, just about to press buy on the ferry tickets to call the whole trip off. And Senor Yosmar comes running down the street with my passport. So somebody had actually heard the ad that he put on the radio and had found my passport. And um, yeah, so that was, that was a cool kind of um, a lesson for me. You know, I, saw the best and the worst in people, you know, I, I was a little, um, not too happy about being mugged, obviously. But then I also saw, you know, was reminded that people have the capacity to be very generous to one another as well. So Senor Yosmar saved the day and Martin and I were so pumped because it meant that the trip was back on. And I was like, Senor, is there any way I can repay you? And he just looks at me and goes, cerveza. So <laughs> we, we had a beer together and celebrated and, um, yeah, that's that's really stayed with me, you know. Did you keep your hand over the top of your beer this time? <laughs> Absolutely. Nice. Yeah, we we, right. we took it super easy the rest of that trip. And uh, my buddy Martin was great too. You know, I didn't have any credit cards, so he just paid for everything. We kept track of it. And when he got back to Norway, I I, I wired him money. Um, so yeah, I really appreciated that. We've got some longer, younger listeners listening in and saying, wired him money. What is that? Is that like <laughs> did before Venmo and PayPal? Yeah, before Venmo. That's old school. Old school. That's yep. right. And it, it wasn't too fun either, converting from uh, Chilean pesos to U.S. dollars to Norwegian kroners. <laughs> All right. Hey, you, we've talked about uh, New Zealand and Australia. We've talked about South America with Patagonia. Let's move to Europe now. Uh, any you talked about the Southern Alps earlier. Any experience in the actual Alps? Yeah. So this was 2014. I think I was 24 years old. I fished my last season up in Alaska, and we had a we had a really good year that year. So I was so pumped because my buddy, my best friend from home, um, his name's Cree, short for Chris. Uh, we've been planning to do like the classic backpacking through Europe trip since we were in high school. It's something we'd always wanted to do. So as soon as I got done working up there, we flew to Milan and we didn't have any plans just to kind of ride the trains, um, hike and camp as much as possible. 
and explore as much of the Alps as we could. So the first place we went was the Italian Dolomites, and that range was just awesome. We uh, we did quite a bit of hiking up there. We were we were just kind of winging it though, like you know we didn't really have a place to stay. We I think we took a train and then a bus up to the Dolomites. And we're like, what are we gonna do now? And we were literally standing in a McDonald's, just like wondering where we were gonna stay. And we got talking to these guys from Italy, and we're like, do you have a, do you know like where we can stay around here? He's like, you can stay in my garden. <laughs> so we wound up setting up our tent in this guy's garden, which was right you know, like at the foothills of the Dolomites, the view was unreal. Um, so super generous. So when we wound up camping there for a few nights and then doing a bunch of day hikes from there. Nice. And the food uh, in Italy is very good. Yeah. They made us yeah. a homemade meal. We had wine together. It was cool. Uh, we were definitely on that trip. It was before we started working full time. So we were still like kind of dirtbagging it. We were on a shoestring budget. Um, so we were eating a lot of like, you know, bread from the bakery, um, drinking coffee out of vending machines and not, you know, beautiful French cafes. And was this, was this Martin again? Martin did meet up with us on that trip. Yep. Okay. Um, yeah. We had a few friends join for a couple of weeks. Uh, Cree and I were together the whole time, but you know, we'd have oh, friends. Cree, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, we'd have Martin came for a few weeks and then my buddy Eric came. Um, so people would meet us along the way, but we were over there for a good three months um, so after Italy, we went to the Swiss Alps, did a bunch of hiking there. And, uh, that place is amazing. That's one place I'm really excited to go back to. Tori and I are actually going back in July, um, as part of our honeymoon. So I can't wait to do some more hiking then. Now, Switzerland, it looks like a, a storybook. I mean, it looks, it, it, it looks too beautiful to be true. Yeah, that's exactly how it feels. Like I remember we were still kind of in our hitchhiking phase then. So we hitched a ride to, um, Lauterbrunnen, which is just such a beautiful town. That's exactly the word I'd use to describe it. It felt like something out of like a storybook or a fairy tale. Like you roll into town and there's just like these waterfalls, huge cliffs, and then the snow-covered Alps towering above that. So we actually did a little climb there too, um, kind of in the the shadows of um, the Eiger and Jungfrau. We could see them from the peak we did, which was pretty cool. Okay. But yeah, yeah. I feel like we're working our way through the continents. We, we, we've uh, talked about three different continents already. Any any experience in Asia? Yeah. So in 2017, I decided to go to Nepal by myself and uh, do the Annapurna circuit. Uh, 2017 was kind of a rough year for me. I was feeling a little down. It was before I met Tori. Actually, it was right around the time I met Tori. But anyway, I was like just kind of feeling stuck in my desk job and I really want to do something different. So I was just like Googling places. I'd always wanted to go to Nepal um, and I found the Annapurna circuit. And I was like, this sounds awesome. Um, and I was, you know, going solo. I was like, people were telling me oh, I should probably take a guide. But I was like, it doesn't look that difficult. And um, it's a tea house trek. So you're actually staying in a building every night in a bed. You hike from town to town. And then there's all these little, they call them tea houses um, where you get hot food. So you really um, didn't have to carry very much in the way of food or water. Um, so yeah, it was a super cool trip. So I just showed up in Nepal by myself. Uh, it was my first time, my first time in Asia, actually. And navigating the bus system in Kathmandu was pretty tough. Like it took me a couple days to get a ride to the trailhead. Um, now what's the, <laughs> what's the elevation of the Annapurna circuit? 
It gets up to, I want to say like 17.2 or 17,500. It actually, so you hike for a long time and then it goes over the Thorong La Pass, which I believe is the highest mountain pass in the world. Um, So yeah, it gets up above 17,000 feet. And that was kind of like the pinnacle of the track. Like you hike for, you know, four or five days and that's kind of like the summit that everybody's looking forward to and talking to. And I met some really cool people along the trail. Like I got off the bus at the, in Bessie Sahar, which is where the trail starts. And there's a guy from Australia and a guy from India. And we just kind of like looked at each other, like start walking. And we wound up hiking together for four or five days. They're great guys. Um, What's it like taking a, taking a flyer like that and, and saying, I'm going to go by myself to Nepal to hike the Annapurna circuit. Any, any concerns, doubts, worries? I was pretty confident in my abilities as a traveler by then. Um, I was a little anxious, you know, just never been to Asia. So kind of like navigating the cities is more what I was nervous about. But I knew once I got on the trail, I'd be okay. So I was like, I just got to get to the Annapurna circuit and then everything will be fine. So I I hear that there's a lot of uh, burning yak dung. That is true. It did smell, did smell a lot of yak dung. (laughs) But the, the circuit itself was spectacular. And going over the Thoronglot Pass, um, I decided to do that by myself. So I got up at like, I don't know, four in the morning and did a lot of it in the dark. So I'd be at the top for sunrise. And I had the, the summit all to myself, which was pretty cool. There's a bunch of prayer flags up there. And I just kind of like took it all in. It was cool to be hiking through the Himalaya by myself. And, I you know, I knew it was safe because there, there are a lot of people who do that trail. It's not like I was way out there completely alone um but yeah it was cool i was i was digging it nice now don't tell me you've also been to africa i have been to africa yep i did uh kilimanjaro in 2019 that was after the annapurna circuit so that was my sixth continent uh kilimanjaro was really cool though i just you know it's one of those peaks you always hear about and I'd always wanted to go to Tanzania and, you know, I always wanted to do Kilimanjaro. So I decided to finally do it. Um, it was a little different than I expected. It's more of a long hike than a climb. It's not technical. Um, it's just kind of like a long grind. But it's really cool because it goes through five different ecological zones. So you start out in the rainforest and then you're up in the alpine desert and there's these cacti that grow there. And I think they're only found on Kilimanjaro and maybe Mount Kenya. So it's kind of like they look like something out of Dr. Seuss. Um, really kind of cool. And then you get up higher and then it's more of a, you know, a true alpine environment. So I really, I really enjoyed that, how varied the landscape was. It, it was a fun trek. So what was more difficult, the Annapurna circuit or Kilimanjaro? You know, it's tough. They're so different because the Annapurna circuit, you're sleeping in a bed every night, you can get a hot meal, and the food was so good, too. So, you know, it kind of felt like every day you're waking up refreshed and, you know, you can hike as little or as much as you want to. Kilimanjaro, you're in a tent for seven days or eight days, and, you know, there's no place to shower. Um, but I, I think I think the um, Annapurna circuit was probably a little more difficult distance-wise but then just the factors to being out actually on a mountain for seven days. So that, yeah, they were different. Now, did you also head down to Kilimanjaro by yourself or did you drag Tori along this time? I didn't. I, I went on that trip by myself as well. What, what is it about traveling alone that uh, appeals to you? 
you know, I like traveling with my, my best friends. I love traveling with Tori, but I also do love traveling alone. There's some, um, something about being out there, being alone. You feel super connected. You have to rely on your, you know, your skills and your own resources a little bit more. Um, so I think there's a feeling of independence that comes with it. And also just something about like being out there where nobody knows your name and it, there's something liberating about solo travel. It, it's kind of a cool feeling, but I, I like, you know, I like to do both. I like to travel with people and occasionally I like to travel by myself. I think it's all, I think it's all good. Okay. And back to North America, what what were your, your biggest accomplishment in, in North America? Would you say? Hmm. That's a good question. Trying to think if I've really done so lately my buddy Tim and I have been getting into every year we pick a really difficult hike on the East Coast to day hike, like hikes that people usually do in multiple days. So we day hiked the presidential traverse in the White Mountains, and that was a long day. Um recently we did the Great Range in the Adirondacks. I think that was like twenty-five miles and maybe ten or eleven thousand feet. Um in a day. So that, that was a long one. And also the devil's path and the Catskills. I'm trying to think, I haven't done out West. I've done a lot more day hiking. Um, Mount Whitney was, was a good one. Did you do that in a day? Uh, yeah. So I've done Whitney twice. The first time we did it in a day. And I did that with Cree and my friend, Justin. And, um, that was, man, that was back in 2013 or 14. And we had a permit. We, we, I think we were a little overconfident in our capabilities. Like we had just been hanging out in death Valley, 200 feet below sea level. And then we just, were just like, ah, oh, we're just going to go day hike Whitney. And we were at a McDonald's at like seven in the morning. And Justin's like, Hey, it says this hikes 22 miles. And we were like, Oh, better get going. So we banged it out in a day. You could definitely feel the altitude a little bit. Like we were getting pretty tired near the top. Um, but that, that was a fun, a fun time. And then I did it two years ago with my younger brother, which was really incredible experience um i'd had a bad cycling accident less than a month before we did it um i was out riding my road bike and i don't know what happened i had a really bad crash i must have landed right on my head um i had the presence of mind to call tori and she brought me to the er which is weird because i don't remember any of it and like i was in the er and then the trauma center for the better part of a day and the first seven hours after the crash, like, I don't remember anything. It was definitely a bad head injury. So, yeah, it was a little scary. And, um, you know, Tori, God bless her for p- picking up her phone that day. Like, I don't even remember calling her. But um, she, she, you know, really helped me out there. And then, so, yeah, the, the recovery was, like, it was going slow. I had really bad headaches. I was kind of dizzy for a few days after that. I was lying on the couch. My brother texts me. And he's like, I just got permits for Whitney in three weeks. And I was like, I don't know, man. Like, I just crashed my bike. I don't know if it's a good idea. He's like, no, like, we should do it. It'll it'll get you back in the saddle. And I was like, all right, let me go out for a couple walks and see how I feel. So I just kind of, like, took it day by day, and I could feel that I was getting stronger. I was like, yeah, I think we're going to do this. And he, had, he really wanted to do it. He had never been to the top of Whitney before, so – um yeah less than a month after that accident we went up there and this time we we uh stayed at trail camp we took it a little slower right and uh it, it was cool though it definitely was a big confidence booster after that accident yeah and what what's funny to me is that whitney does not look like your traditional mountain i mean if someone told you 
that right there, that is the the highest mountain in the lower 48. It doesn't look like a traditional mountain. So it's not pointy on the top. It's uh, yeah, it's kind of deceiving. Yeah, really deceiving. When you're driving down 395 there, like it doesn't even quite look like the highest peak. But that's, right. it really is a fantastic hike. The Sierra in general, just such a beautiful mountain range. Okay. So – you know what I'm, I'm noticing here, Luke, is that we have we have six continents uh, on your list here. Uh, you're missing one. I am. And is, that's there, definitely is, there a, is there a goal to, to get all seven? There is. Yeah, I would really love to go to Antarctica. Um, I'm not sure when it's going to happen. I know it's very difficult to get to. I think you have to take a boat. But yeah, it's it's definitely a goal of mine. And and 50 states as well. I haven't been to all 50 yet. I think I've been to 44. So that's another goal too. Which states are you missing? Uh, I'm missing West Virginia. And Tori and I are actually going there the day after tomorrow, which I'm really looking forward to. And uh, pretty much just a bunch of states in the South, like Oklahoma, Arkansas, uh, Louisiana. Got it. Now, in terms of Antarctica, I, I talked to an AT hiker who decided that she wanted to try something different. And so she applied to work down at McMurdo station in Antarctica yeah. as a steward, not as a scientist, but as a steward, you know, people who are support staff for the scientists down there. And she got approved. All right on. Yeah. She was trail named Zips. Her, her full name is Anne Marie Athey. And yeah, you know, she texted me the other day saying she still listens to the podcast down there. So I, I, you've been to six out of seven continents. I, I can confidently say that the podcast has been listened to on all seven continents. So that's pretty cool. You got to catch up. But yeah, she also she also volunteered. So she she's working down there. She she got down there during their summer months, which is opposite of us, Southern Hemisphere. But she then extended her stay and applied to stay on during the winter. And wow. it goes down to a skeleton crew of just like 150 people on the continent. And of course it gets dark down there. The sun, the sun sets and doesn't come up for a few months. And uh, I, I can't imagine being down there right now. Yeah. That's gotta be tough. Not having daylight. That's pretty cool. That's a really cool way to go about it. I didn't know that was, um, that was possible to be a steward down there. So props to her. Yeah. Got to get creative about how to get down there. All right, Luke, you've been to all these different places, all these different continents. And in doing so, I mean, how, during all these travels, how has your perspective changed? Your perspective on life, your perspective on people, on yourself? It's interesting. I think my perspective on people has become more positive. Um, everywhere I've gone, you know, we've met great people. You see, you know, if you were to turn on the news, you might think that there's, you know, so, you know, the majority of people are bad and not treating each other well. But when you go out there, there's so many people, like I think of the people in Christchurch or the people in Nepal, like just so many people looking out for each other, being kind, like there's a lot more people taking care of each other than not. So, you know, that's been one thing. Um, I think over the years, I've become a little more self-confident, just having all these experiences. I've learned a lot about myself. Um, I feel more, you know, kind of confident in my day-to-day. Like if I'm having, if I can't sleep or if I'm having a bad day, I'll just think about, well, you know, in Alaska, I've been awake for 30 hours and got up and hauled gear in the pouring rain so I can get through tomorrow, you know, Um, which was kind of my goal setting out. So that's been a big part of it. And then... Yeah. Okay. 
Nice job, Lukey. Hey, you know where we are right now? Where are we at? Hiking Hacks. That's right, Half Calf. It's time for Luke to share some trail wisdom with our listeners to make their next outdoor experience even better. We call this segment our Hiking Hacks. What do you have for us? Some of my trail wisdom, especially as I've gotten a little bit older, you can't underestimate the importance of staying super hydrated out there. Um, especially at altitude, there've been times where I've been getting really fatigued and a lot of times just because I haven't been drinking as much water as I need to. So definitely stay hydrated out there. Um, I remember one time we were climbing a mountain in Norway in the winter time, me and Martin, and we were with some people from Denmark and England. And, uh, this one Danish guy was like mountaineer peeing clear. And that's always stayed with me. So if you start feeling fatigued out there, just keep that in mind. All right. Keep drinking that water. Nice job. So there you have it. We are just about done here. Hope our listeners enjoyed our time with Luke. Want to thank him for joining us this week. Luke, how can our listeners keep up with you on social media and where can they find updates on your latest adventures? Yeah. So I'm on Instagram. It's Luke Kelly travels and uh, I have a Facebook page under the same name. So those are the two main places right now. Okay. Remember to check out the pod on social media as well. We are on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you have comments or clips you want to share, you can send it to me at johnfreakingmuir at gmail.com. Off the beaten path. Now, unfortunately, we can't always be on the trail. And when we're not, we need to find a way to get our adventure fixed. So, Luke, I'm look, I'm asking you to share some outdoor adventure media with our listeners to help them get by. This can be a book, a book, a movie, or a documentary. We call this segment Off the Beaten Path. What do you have for us? Yeah. So like I said, I've been reading a lot of books lately and I just finished The River of Doubt by Kenneth Millard. It's about, uh, are you familiar with it? I am. I am. I've tried to, The River of Doubt. This is this is about down in uh, South uh, South America? Yeah. The Amazon River with Theodore and Roosevelt. Theodore Roosevelt. Yeah. I've, I've been yeah. trying to get her to come on. She, she's actually liked a couple of my posts. Oh, are you I've, serious? I've reached out to her to try and get her to come on and talk about that book because it is wild. It is completely bonkers. It is incredible. I would definitely recommend that one. You got to let me know if you have her on. Tell her that I'm yeah. a big fan of her work. Absolutely. Candace, if you're listening out there, come on the podcast. Absolutely. But yeah, it's, it's an incredible book. And, and, it's uh, a crazy story. I mean, it, it talks about uh, Roosevelt after he lost his, his election yep. and he went into a depression. And how he dealt with this depression is, is you know, I kind of get the feeling it's how a lot of people deal with the depression. They get out on the trail. They take on some new adventure. And he decided he was going to navigate this river that had never been navigated before. You know, they didn't know where it went. That's why it was called, you know, River of Doubt. It was kind of the unknown in South America. And yeah, he, just, he gets this he gets this crew together and they get on these boats. He, he uses this guy who was unsuccessful in a, a previous uh, expedition and planning an expedition. And he, he puts that guy in responsibility, gives him the responsibility to kind of coordinate the trip. And it goes about as you you think it might go. Yeah, it's wild. And it's crazy to think about an ex-president doing that. Um, He was 55 years old at the time. And just going down an unexplored tributary tributary of the Amazon is is pretty fascinating. Um, It sounds super uncomfortable. It definitely took a lot of courage. So I really enjoyed that book. Would definitely recommend it. Yeah. Talk about embracing the suck. I mean, there was a lot of suck going on. Yeah, but I think that's something a lot of people can relate to, um, especially in the States, that idea of, you know, kind of going to the the wilderness when when you're feeling down. Um, yeah, 
Yeah. I mean, a lot of these long distance through hikers that I talked to, they're working on stuff out there. I mean, they're, they're alone with their thoughts, just kind of going through stuff. Yeah, absolutely. And I can relate to that too. Like when I did the Annapurna circuit, um, maybe Kilimanjaro, I was kind of feeling that way too. And just working it out on the trail really is, I think, I think it works. It's a good way to deal, deal with some things. But now you've got Tori, so there's nothing left to work out. Now I have Tori. She's great. Nice. We're uh, we're going on our honeymoon this summer. We're going to the Azores, Switzerland, and Ireland. I really can't wait for that. Wow. Is that like a three-day trip? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want to say 19 days. Wow. So, that's fantastic. Yeah. And I love traveling with Tori. We travel really well together. So That's important. Yeah. She's great. And super supportive of, you know, like when I was like, Hey, I'm going to go to Africa for a week or I'm going to go live in my car and travel around the U S for a couple months. She's super supportive. So that that's huge. I, I try to, I try to reciprocate, you know, it's that's important in a relationship to support each other as much as you can. That's right. She sounds like a keeper. Make her happy. Absolutely. She is. What have we not asked you? And Luke, before we wrap things up, just one more segment for you call. What have I not asked you that you're dying to tell us about? What do we miss tonight? You know, Doc, I was going to actually say I was going to talk about how I wanted to go to Antarctica, but you did ask me that. But you mentioned that you were a catcher. Um, I do want to say that I'm a big baseball fan as well, big Mets fan. Are you, you a Dodgers guy? I got to ask. I'm a Dodgers guy. Absolutely. I, I thought we'd uh, be playing you guys in the NLDS last year, but the Mets did what the Mets do and uh, lost early. Yeah, we've got we've got Syndergaard as our fifth starter, and I'm not sure how yeah. I feel about him. He started off. He started off. I mean, his first game, he was lights out, and it's been a struggle ever since. Yeah, he's lost a lot of his velocity. I remember watching him pitch for the Mets in 2015. He was fun to watch. Do you make it out to games very often? Yeah, I was actually a half-season uh, ticket holder last year, and we were planning on going to maybe 10 or 15 games this year. That's awesome. Dodger Stadium's a great great ballpark. It is. A lot of history there. A lot of fun. Yeah. All right. And uh, we are finished. Luke, thank you for coming on the podcast. We wish you the very best on your honeymoon adventure. That sounds like a lot of fun. And we hope you'll consider coming back at some future point and sharing some more epic stories with us. Absolutely. This was awesome. Thanks a lot, Doc. You are welcome. As we close up today, do you have any shout outs to friends and family? Um, yeah. Like I mean, I already shouted out Tori quite a bit, but she really is the best. So her, my parents, um, they've been super supportive. My brothers, Dan and Nick, uh, my friends, Chris, Eric, Martin, and Megan. Martin and Megan. There you go. Is Tori sitting in the same room with you listening in? Uh, she might be upstairs right now listening. So hope she's happy with what I've said. <laughs> All right. Hey, thank you for tuning in. Always remember the trail is the trail. It doesn't care if you want to go downhill. It doesn't care if it's almost dark and you're looking for a campsite. It doesn't even care if you and Martin got roofied last night. The trail <laughs> is the trail. Embrace the suck. When 
you go out there and the fish are where you think they are, any one of these casts could be the bite. It's the most exciting fishing that I know right here at Hawks Cave. Oh, that's awesome. Experience the best saltwater fishing the world has to offer. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 6 to 9 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment.